In Yale history professor Beverly Gage's 837-page cradle-to-grave biography of J. Edgar Hoover, she writes, quote, I do not count myself among Hoover's admirers, unquote. However, in the introduction, she says her book, G-Man, is less about judging him than about understanding him. Hoover ran the FBI for 48 years until he died at age 77 in 1972. Gage, who did her undergraduate work at Yale and received her Ph.D. from Columbia, writes that Hoover emerged as one of history's great villains, perhaps the most universally reviled American political figure of the 20th century. Beverly Gage, in your book, you say, I do not count myself among Hoover's admirers. Why did you feel the need to point that out? Well, I think partly because this is a book that is trying to take someone who's been a pretty one-dimensional villain in our public culture and say he was more complicated, uh, he did have certain redeeming features, and that he's more important than uh, we have necessarily understood. And simply by humanizing him, by making him more complicated, I think there was some danger uh, that people were going to read this as a, as a revisionist history, uh, as somehow championing Hoover. And I, I wanted to make it clear that that wasn't my intention. I, I think the book itself makes that clear as well. To get you into talking about J. Edgar Hoover, uh, and I haven't heard you talk about it, read about it in your book, Tom Charles Houston. Who was he? And explain the Hoover personality around that whole story. Yeah, Tom Houston is a fascinating character. He was a young staffer in the Nixon administration, a pretty devout conservative, and he understood himself to be doing, among other things, kind of taking charge of uh, Nixon's war with the bureaucracy, and in this case, with the intelligence establishment, which is to say that Nixon very much wanted to bring the intelligence agencies under more control of the White House, in some sense, to, to politicize them, and Houston was part of that. So in 1970, as this young man, he is put in charge of bringing together the heads of the intelligence agencies and coming up with a plan to go even more aggressively, basically against movements that are, are criticizing the Nixon administration and causing what they see as disruption in American life, black power, civil rights, anti-war, the student left. Um, and so he comes up with this plan to uh, be more aggressive on those fronts. And amazingly, it is J. Edgar Hoover who says, actually, this all seems quite problematic. Uh, some of it seems illegal. I don't think we should do this. And it's this moment of kind of bureaucratic mastery for Hoover. Nixon wants to move ahead. Hoover says no. And then Nixon, both in his memoir and in conversations with staffers says, well, you know, if J. Edgar Hoover doesn't want to do it, there's there's not much a president can do. And so he gives in to Hoover. Um, you're right. As a person, Houston was more skeptical, not only of Hoover, but of any unelected bureaucrat who chose to spend a lifetime in government. Explain that. Well, I think that is what Hoover represented uh, to a figure like Houston. And I think it was one of the things that was most interesting to me in writing this biography is that we tend to kind of narrate our political history as a series of battles between Republicans and Democrats and election cycles. And, you know, there are a lot of good reasons for that. But there's this other story that is about the growth of the federal government and about a series of incredible incredibly important actors um, who made their careers and their power in that part of the state that is unelected. So for Houston and for I think a lot of conservatives of the 60s and 70s and since, the unelected wing of the state was often seen as a kind of bastion of, of liberalism, right? particularly parts of the administrative state that had been built by the New Deal or by the Great Society. Uh, but there was a larger critique of um, the administrative state generally that I think Houston was reflecting. How much interaction was there between Tom Charles Houston in 1970, he couldn't have been very old, and J. Edgar Hoover? Did they talk to one another? Did, would Hoover 
deign to talk to somebody as young as he is and, and tell us why? Well, when they were coming up with the Houston plan, there were a couple of meetings that were these kind of meetings of, of officials where they all got together. So in those cases, Houston and Hoover were in the same room, although Hoover, uh, by all accounts, was pretty theatrical about being dismissive toward Houston. And he would call him, you know, Hutchins or Hutchinson or get his name wrong. And he was also pretty dismissive about him in conversation with top officials. The actual details of the plan, uh, Hoover delegated to upper level officials in, in the FBI, figures like William Sullivan, who was one of the most important officials during the Nixon years. And so they were the ones who had a lot more interaction. Even though Hoover turned down this idea, how much of it was actually implemented by Nixon through Houston, or how did he get it done? Well, one of the funny things about the Houston plan is, of course, that uh, the FBI itself was already engaged in quite a lot of infiltration and surveillance and disruption aimed at the very groups that Nixon was interested in. Um, they certainly continued that, though it is true during this period of the late 60s and early 70s, Hoover was growing more cautious about it, um, in part because he believed that there was a public critique that had already started and that was really going to come. And he was absolutely right about that. Uh, but the Army, the CIA, the NSA, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff going on. So in effect, I think the Houston plan saw a lot of what it had on paper, though, in a formal sense, um, it was not approved by the president and wasn't wasn't implemented in that way. As you point out in the book, it's eight presidents for J. Edgar Hoover from Coolidge to Nixon. We have some, as you well know, plenty of audio tape about Nixon and and also LBJ, which we have. We're going to run a little clip here from Richard Nixon. And I want you to tell us about their relationship beyond the Houston plan. Edgar. Yep. I wanted to tell you that I was so damn mad when that Supreme Court had to come down. I didn't, first, I didn't like their decision, but unbelievable, wasn't it? It was unbelievable. You know, those clowns we've got on there, I, I'll tell you, I hope I outlive the bastards. Well, I hope yeah. you do, too. Uh, I mean, politically, too, because by, we've got to change that court. I, there's no question yeah. about that whatsoever. Yeah. I had thought it was a possibility of a five to four. Yeah. You know, I thought I thought we ought to get white. What's the matter with him? I don't. Well, of course, with a white is an yeah. old Kennedy yeah. crowd. Right. So. But then the other know what in the hell is the matter with Stewart? Well, Stewart is a is a it, very wishy-washy individual. He switches from one side to yeah, the other. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, I wasn't surprised that he yeah. on this thing he switched. This is the Pentagon Papers case. What do you hear there between these two men? Well, I think the first thing about Hoover and Nixon is that they had been friends for a long, long time by the time Nixon became president. They got to know each other in the late 40s. They were very close when Nixon was vice president in the 50s. And then they maintained that relationship socially as well as practically throughout the 60s, which were the years when Nixon was in a little bit of the political wilderness. So uh, the first thing I hear is that they're being pretty honest with each other, right? They're not pulling a lot of punches. Um, there's that history of closeness that you can hear. And they shared a lot of the same political views, um, both in terms of gossip in Washington and the kind of power plays that they both enjoyed. And then, you know, in terms of a kind of hostility, not only to liberalism and certain kinds of liberals, but uh, especially to, you know, kind of Ivy educated liberals that they thought were um, being far too nice to the new left, to the student movement, the anti-war movement, etc. So I also hear this sense of, of, of common outlook and common enmity there. Now, it is true that when Nixon became president, they thought it was going to be great. And it turned out that they had a whole series of conflicts. And in the end, the Pentagon Papers ends up being one of these instances in which they run into conflict with each other. Nixon really wants the FBI to go after Daniel Ellsberg, who they understood to have leaked the Pentagon Papers. 
Hoover is a little more cautious about that because he uh, says to Nixon in a different tape, you know, they're going to turn Ellsberg into a martyr if we do some of the things that you uh, want to do to him. Uh, it becomes one of the reasons, actually, that Nixon creates the, the plumbers is Hoover's resistance in cases uh, like like Ellsberg to be as aggressive as, as Nixon wants. What about the story behind the Nixon administration and his people around him wanting to fire uh, J. Edgar Hoover. I mean, he was, he died in, in the Nixon administration at age 77, and he'd been there, as you point out, for 48 years. What happened when they wanted to, to uh, tell him it's time to retire? Yeah, the amazing thing about Hoover's career, or at least one of them, is that, that he was simply there for so long. So he had become director of the Bureau in 1924 at the age of 29. And then he was still there 40-some uh, years later, and in the end, 48 years later by the time he died. Uh, so as the 1960s went along, there was talk of, A, is is, is Edgar getting too old? Um, is he amassing actually too much power? Um, and so there was talk of retirement. Lyndon Johnson is actually the person that we owe our uh, greatest dubious debt to for keeping Hoover on. There was a mandatory federal retirement age of 70 at that point, but Johnson exempted Hoover from that. Um, and so he was able to stay on past the age of 70. Um, and Nixon, when he came into office, thought, this is going to be great. My old friend Edgar's there. He's going to do what I want. They got into these conflicts. So by 1970 and 71, Nixon is saying, you know, the time really may have come to, to begin to try to ease him out. There are a series of very funny memos, uh, sort of brainstorming memos and conversations between Nixon and his staffers, where they're saying, okay, how are we going to do this? Maybe we can make him a Supreme Court justice. <laughs> Maybe we can let him keep his you know, special government car and his staff. And uh, Nixon does sit down with Hoover at one point and say, uh, you know, Edgar, I think after the election, we really ought to say you're stepping down. Your moment has come. We'll retire you as a hero. And Hoover kind of says, no, I don't really want to do that. And Nixon says, oh, well, OK, <laughs> and gives in. But then uh, Hoover dies several months later. You had a note. I'd never seen this before. Um, and I'd be interested where you found it. I, I wrote it down. By October, Nixon suspected that Mark Felt was the leaker, thanks to a tip from a press source. I'd never seen that. Where is it? Where was that? Where'd you find that? Mark so Felt, that's in the... Mark Felt used that's to... In the Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just going to say Mark Felt was the deep throat, and eventually we found that out years later. But go ahead. Right. So uh, if I'm remembering correctly, that is from a conversation with one of Nixon's top staffers, maybe Ehrlichman or Dean. But, it, but it's from it's from a conversation where they're talking about Felt uh, pretty explicitly. And then other scholars have kind of dug in and, and tried to figure out, you know, where they seem to have gotten this. But uh, so they had their suspicions about who was Deep Throat uh, long before it was public. And, and again, they didn't really feel, as with Hoover, that they could act on it immediately because uh, they were worried um, about the FBI's investigation and they were worried about what else a, a figure like Felt might know and might be, might be willing to leak. This is uh, an 800... 37 page book. I believe it's 837. I pointed out in the inter introduction that you didn't hear. Uh, 2009, you started all this, 13 years work at it. You said, well, tell us how that happened and fits and st I saw an interview with you long time ago on, I saw it on YouTube, where you were, you were saying something like, the book will be out in 2013. <laughs> Uh, but talk us through a little bit of the process on this. Right. So it is true. It took me more than a decade. And I, of course, wasn't working on it every moment at that time. I'm also a professor and a mom and all of those other things. 
Um, but I think I entered into this being very drawn to uh, two things. One was the sheer scope of Hoover's life and career, which covered so much of the 20th century. Um, and then the number of new files and research materials that had come out during uh, the period from the mid-90s, which was when the last round of biographies had come out up to uh, the moment that I started and then continued working on it. So as it turns out, those two factors <laughs> mean that it takes a, a really long time uh, to write and to get into enough of the material um, to have some understanding of, of what happened in all of these different periods. You know, one thing I found, this is the first biography I've ever written, and there are lots of advantages and appeals to biography as a structure, but one of the things that it does is have a kind of completist ethos, which is to say you're kind of obligated to learn at least something about everything of significance in uh your person's life. And in Hoover's case, that was such a vast array of things, both in terms of the, the primary material and that just in terms of the secondary sources. Any single episode has a vast literature uh, attached to it. Um, so that's why it took so long. I, I want to go into some detail. As a matter of fact, I want to make sure that people that listen to this podcast know I'm not trying to go from cradle to grave in spite of the fact that you did in your book because give you they, they need to go out and buy your book, then they can get all the details. But I do want to talk some process. But before I do that, I wrote down three questions as I was reading it. Um, they all follow uh, one after the other. First one is, which part of his life made the biggest impact on you? I would have to say it was the early part of his life because there were certain ideas that we could see from his later career, ideas about anti-communism, ideas about government service and how he understood that and bureaucracy, ideas about race that I wanted to know the origins of. And then there was just the question of, of Hoover as, as a man. How did he get the personality and the quirks that he had. And a lot of those I, I found in his early years. So I was able to uncover some kind of family incidents uh, and traumas that he had never discussed very much. And of course, uh, there's a certain kind of uh, speculative nature to how those impacted him since he didn't talk about them, but they seemed important. The context of Washington, D.C., the fact that he was born in Washington, raised in Washington, never left, seemed really critical both for thinking about his path into career government service and the kinds of ideas that he brought with him. And then also thinking about things like race and segregation. He grew up in a, in a segregating city uh, and was really influenced by a lot of those ideas. Um, and his religiosity, uh, his religious conservatism, I could also see forming there. So as a biographer, I just found those early years really fascinating. And then part of the argument of the book is that there are a lot more continuities between the progressive era, the early 20th century, uh, and where we end up in, in the 60s and 70s than we always recognize and that you can see some of those through through a figure like Hoover. Got the impression that you thought his grandfather's uh, suicide, his aunt's murder had some impact on him. Could you explain both of those? I think so. Well, there's such major family events. Um, so in just looking at his parents, it seems that they... Uh, both came together and got married you know, pretty young, I guess pretty typical for the moment, 18, 19, 20 years old. Uh, but they had both just lost their fathers and they uh, and one of those fathers had, had committed suicide. And so that seemed sort of important to understanding what might have connected them. Um, and then there's this fascinating moment that I had never seen mentioned uh, that was much easier to uncover because we now have digital newspaper databases where you can search for things like this. Um, I knew uh, the family name and plugged it in. And it turned out that uh, his mother's brother's wife had been murdered by her lover in this very dramatic way that was on the front pages of the newspapers. And so you have to think for a future 
a future lawman. I mean, Hoover was 10 years old at that at that point. He must have known something about this and, and, and thought something about it at the time. Second question I wrote down, which part of your research did you enjoy the most? Well, I really am fascinated by uh, the struggle over communism in the 20th century. And so that is, in terms of my scholarly interests, um, I think part of the the draw in thinking about that as as the big theme of Hoover's life, a big theme anyway. Um, And there are just great new materials that have come out uh, since the end of the Cold War on that subject. Probably my my favorite file was the file called Solo. Um, And Solo was a a very secret FBI operation, but that now has been fully released by the Bureau. Uh, They were two brothers who were inside the Communist Party, had been very serious communists in the the 40s and 50s, um, had a break with the party, and then were kind of reactivated by the FBI in the 50s to uh, go back into the party and be FBI informants. One of them ended up as the international representative of the Communist Party traveling around the world, meeting with figures like Khrushchev and Mao and Castro, um, and then coming back and telling everything to the Bureau. And then the other one ended up as sort of a a financial courier of money from the Soviet Union uh, back into the United States. And he would dutifully, you know, count it all up, turn it over to the FBI. They would uh, write down all the bills and then he would hand it on uh, to the party. And that continued for about 30 years. Um, all in secret. So those files were really fascinating. I didn't actually have a chance to write about them in as much detail as I as I read them because you know, for Hoover, they're only relevant uh, in as much as they, they kind of shape his world. Who maintains Solo? Where do you find that information? So there are a remarkable number of really interesting files, including the Solo files that are up on the FBI's own site. So it used to be if you wanted to read FBI files, you either had to file your own Freedom of Information Act request uh, or go to the FBI's in-person reading room. But now there is a site called the FBI Vault, and they put up a lot of their most famous or most recently released cases. There's a lot that's not there, but for people who are just starting to do this kind of research, uh, the vault is a is a really fascinating place to, I would say, spend a few hours. But if you really get into it, it could be years. That's the warning. Where did you write this physically? Uh, I wrote it in uh, New Haven, which is where I live, Um, and I spent some time in D.C. doing research in various summers, especially. Um, So, yeah, I was mostly writing either at home or at my office uh, at Yale, um, sitting at my computer. It turned out that, um, you know, the pandemic was was, uh, uh, actually weirdly useful for these final phases of the book because it took away all other distractions and ability to do anything. And so uh, it, it, it was it was kind of useful to be, you know, trapped in my townhouse uh, with, with J. Edgar Hoover. How did you keep the information uh, in the computer or whatever? How did you know where everything was, all of your research files? Yeah, so I tried to do this as an almost exclusively digital project, which is to say uh, I did not want to have to build a wing of my house to house everything on paper. Um, And in fact, Freedom of Information Act requests, lots of other sources are now sent digitally. Um, So I've got a a big hard drive and uh, various backups, which have all of the individual files and things that were on paper I photographed. Um, so I have basically, you know, tens of thousands of, of JPEGs. Um, so if they weren't available in digital form, I, I digitized them in that sense. And then I work in a database called FileMaker, which is basically glorified index cards, which you can glorify in, in all sorts of ways. And so from that primary research, I took my own notes and extracted my own quotes into this FileMaker database um, and then tagged all of those with a bunch of different things, themes that I was interested in, dates, uh, so that 
I got to chapter 47, let's say, and I wanted to know everything that happened in order in 1960, I could search it that way. If I was interested in, you know, what was the Communist Party doing in the 50s, uh, I could do searches that were for communism and a certain date range. And so that's where it all is. Did you submit a manuscript when it was completed or as you went along to the publisher? Uh, I turned in the first half uh, quite a long time ago, and then uh, the second half came many years later, uh, and then there were a couple of final chapters that I snuck in at the very end. My third question I wrote down is, which part of the writing was the most rewarding? In some ways, I liked writing the personal chapters, um, trying to understand Hoover as uh, as a man um, and trying to understand relationships, um, in part because that challenged some of my um, kind of descriptive writing skills in a way that uh, more analytic uh, or more sort of, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, forms of history uh, didn't. And then I also really enjoyed some of the chapters that were just um, the blow by blow of some big case um, that I found really fascinating. So the German saboteurs case of 1942, I don't have too many chapters that are just set pieces about a single case, but that one was so big and dramatic and had so many fascinating details uh, that it was just kind of fun to write as a, as a pretty straight narrative. Where was Hoover about the German uh, Americans <clears throat> that were here uh, during World War II? What, what was his attitude about the internment and also the Japanese while we're talking about it? Yeah, Hoover got his start in World War One. His one of his very first duties in the government when he went to work for the Justice Department, which was in 1917, the moment that the United States was entering World War One, was German internment and registration. Um, that was the one of the first things he was tasked with doing, um, and I think he learned a lot of lessons from the World War One experience. But when World War Two came around. The FBI actually uh, engaged in its own targeted internment program, which included not only uh, a small number of uh, Japanese Americans, but also, uh, well, they weren't American citizens, but Japanese living in the United States, Germans, Italians, um, and Hoover had been planning that since really 1939. So when Pearl Harbor came along, uh, it happened pretty quickly. But Interestingly, he opposed mass Japanese internment, um, which started in 1942, in part because he said, look, we're the FBI, we'll tell you who's dangerous, you don't have to intern everyone. Um, and he also thought that the internment of uh, Japanese Americans who were American citizens was simply unconstitutional. Um, and he really thought that, told that to the Roosevelt administration, um, but they, they obviously didn't agree. When did they release the background on the German internment and the German story and all that? When did where did you find that material? And is it new? Right. Well, there are really fascinating files that are are, are very little used on German internment, as you might imagine, both in World War One and uh, in World War Two. You know, the fact of internment was pretty public. I mean, there's lots of news coverage, and these are camps, right? I mean, they're 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 public. People can see that this is. Uh, that this is happening. Uh, the German saboteurs case, which was 1942, was a slightly different story uh, because that was um, done in a pretty hush-hush manner. I mean, there was publicity about it, but uh, they ended up being tried by military commission and then executed actually in, in secret uh, by presidential order. And so a lot of the details of that uh, didn't begin to come out until after the war um, and then have, have, have continued to come out since then. Uh, there's a street in this town, um, D.C., 30th place. Uh, LBJ lived there and Hoover. How, how have, did you go to those homes to see how far apart they were? Uh, I did. I did. I walked uh, 30th place. And in fact, um, 
I, uh, I, I knocked on the door and, and, and the, the owners there were very kind about letting me peek inside. Uh, but yeah, Hoover only ever lived in two places. Uh, he was born just a few blocks away from uh, the Capitol in a little part of Capitol Hill called Seward Square. He lived there with his mother uh, until she died when he was 43 years old. Um, and at that point, he moved out to 30th place. Uh, which is uh, further out in the Northwest, sort of up by um, Chevy Chase. And uh, he and Lyndon Johnson were neighbors. They they walked their dogs on the street. The Johnson girls used to sneak up and, and allegedly steal some of Hoover's flowers and then run away and say they had stolen things from the FBI director. But uh, so they had a they had a very neighborly relationship there. LBJ, I, we've got good audio and I'm sure you've listened to it. This is... LBJ and Hoover, November the 29th, 1963, after the assassination, very short time after the assassination, one week, talking about Warren, the Warren Commission members. It's uh, about 56 seconds. Let's run it, and then you can react to what you're hearing. What do you think about Alan Dulles? Uh, I think he would be a good man. What do you think about John McCloy? Uh, I'm not as enthusiastic about, about McCloy. I knew him back in the Patterson, when Patterson was down here, the secretary thing. He's a good man, but uh, I'm not so certain as to the uh, matter of the publicity that he might seek on it. What about General Nordstrom? A uh, good man. Uh, I guess Boggs has started in the House. I thought maybe we might try to get Boggs and Jerry Ford uh, in the House, and maybe try to get Dick Russell and uh, maybe Cooper in the Senate. Yes, I think so. I don't know. You know anything? Any reason? Uh, just talking. Me and you gonna talk like brothers? Yeah. No. No other is any reason? Uh, any there? I thought Russell could kind of look after uh, the general situation and see that uh, the states uh, and their relations. Russell would be an excellent man. Talk like brothers. What? What did? What? What do you think that meant? Why was he doing? Why was LBJ talking to Mr. Hoover about being his brother? Well, they were pretty close um, by this moment. Uh, they had been neighbors, as we said, and especially during the years that Johnson was vice president, uh, they both were sort of on the outs with the Kennedys and had bonded over that and saw each other as as basically sympathetic in that sense. Of course, this was also something Johnson did and said with a lot of people, right? He wants to bring you in close. You're the most special confidant, right? I mean, that was a that was a, a shtick and a, and a skill of Johnson's. Um, and I think some of this was genuine consultation and others was kind of Hoover management. Uh, he wanted to make sure Hoover felt consulted uh, in part because the Warren Commission was going to be something of a challenge to the FBI, right? If we remember what happened in the Kennedy assassination, Kennedy is killed, Oswald is arrested, but then, of course, Oswald himself is is murdered. And one of the things that that means is that there isn't going to be a trial. And so there's a lot of anxiety about how you're going to demonstrate that Oswald did this or whoever might have done it, but uh, they believe pretty early on that it was that it was Oswald and Oswald acting alone. And uh, for a little while, there's an idea that simply the FBI producing a report and J. Edgar Hoover saying this is what we believe will be enough. But there's enough suspicion and public pushback that uh, that's one of the reasons the Warren Commission forms. And so it's a very touchy subject early on. Um, Johnson wants to make sure that Hoover's going to cooperate and kind of feel secure with the Warren Commission. And I think you can see that sort of negotiation going on in this conversation, too. As if we we're listening, it's a much longer uh we have all the audio on our on, on our website. But as we were listening to, we kept saying to ourselves, you know, t- seven days later, they basically had concluded what has been generated millions and millions and of books and movies and everything since then. It comes back to the same conclusion they had about Lee Harvey Oswald seven days later. I just did a podcast with a man named Paul Gregory, who 
60 years ago, newly Harvey Oswald and Marina Oswald, and he believes that it was a single assassin and it was Lee Harvey Oswald. What do you think about Because you've seen so much of the, of the um, uh, research files on all this stuff. Why, did, why, why does it take so long to get to the conclusion they had after seven days? Yeah, the Kennedy assassination was one of these moments where obviously it needed to be covered in the book. It was hugely important both to Hoover's public image and his future and his relationship with Johnson and to the country at large. Uh, and yet, I didn't think I was going to, you know, come up with uh, a brand new solution to the Kennedy assassination uh, or even be able to look at every book and every file, right? I mean, this is just a vast, a vast amount of material. So this is one of many places in the book where I had to figure out, you know, what my my strategy might be. Um, and I got particularly interested in uh, Hoover's experience of it in the, the week that was concentrated around the assassination itself, when so many dramatic things happen from the assassination to Oswald's murder, uh, to the creation of the Warren Commission, um, and how many kind of dramatic pivots that required, uh, how much pressure the FBI was under, um, and then the Warren Commission itself, in which Hoover is clearly trying to manage the Warren Commission politically, um, is producing a lot of material, holding back some material that he didn't want uh, to be seen, and working very closely with with, with Johnson. So. Those were the kind of political questions uh, that led me in. But you know, one of the interesting things to your to your point, why has this had so much currency? I think Hoover and Johnson could see in that moment, partly because of Oswald's murder, partly because of Oswald's truly bizarre biography, right? I mean, defecting to the Soviet Union and coming back and the trips to Mexico and all of that, uh, that there was just in this moment of Cold War intensity going to be uh, a lot of suspicion and that that would probably go on for a long time. They wanted to try to contain it with the Warren Commission. They didn't manage to do that. You know, and in Hoover's testimony uh, at the Warren Commission, he basically says, look, this is our best judgment, but I think that people are going to spin around about this for, for decades to come. Another subject in, in the whole book, and I've counted the number of photographs that would, I, I don't know what the label would be, but it was either a photograph of Clyde Tolson uh, or Clyde Tolson and J. Edgar Hoover together. They're 26, which is a very large number. It's a sub-story throughout your entire book about homosexuality and his relationship to Clyde Tolson. And as you well know, you can go out to the Congressional Cemetery and there's J. Edgar Hoover and the, his mother and right down three, four uh, grave sites, Clyde Tolson and the family and all that stuff. What, what do you, where's your head after all the research you did on Clyde Tolson and J. Edgar Hoover and why was that so much a part of your book? Well, it was so much a part of the book because it was by far the most important relationship in Hoover's life. Uh, he and Tolson met in the 20s. Tolson became uh, a bureau agent in 1928. And then for most of the next uh, four plus decades, uh, he was at Hoover's side at almost every moment. He rose very quickly to become the number two figure at the bureau. Um, but besides working together, they really lived a very open social partnership. They traveled together. They had all of their meals together. You know, they went to Broadway shows and nightclubs and the track and uh, all of their leisure activities were side by side. And so that material is actually very well documented. Um, you mentioned these 26 photos of the two of them together that are in the book. There are hundreds more that I could have chosen, both official FBI photos, press photos of them doing something like eating at a restaurant. And then what were most interesting to me were these series of really quite intimate personal photos that Hoover had saved mostly from their vacations together in the 30s and 40s. And in the book, you see photos of them in their bathrobes or sunning on the beach or kind of looking into the camera in pretty intimate and affectionate ways at each other. And so I tried to, to use this material to, to think about their relationship. 
You know, in the end, I think it's very clear uh, they were each other's most important relationship. They effectively acted as each other's spouses. I think they deeply loved and cared about each other. Um, it is impossible to say whether they were having a sexual relationship. We just don't know that um, and probably will will never know that. Um, and as a historian, I try to stick with the evidence that we have. Um, and, you know, Hoover was... Uh, a very public figure. And so during his lifetime, there were, of course, rumors that they were uh, engaged in a quote unquote homosexual uh, relationship, as it would have been put at the time. And Hoover was very aggressive about policing those rumors and was very aware of them, would actually send FBI agents to the door of someone who had been overheard at a party saying, you know, hey, I hear these rumors about, about the director. And of course, he was very involved in, as the FBI was institutionally, in policing other people's sex lives and in uh, particularly in the 40s and 50s, having gay people purged from their government jobs. So it's a very complicated story. But in terms of Hoover and Tolson, you know, on the one hand, they have this very open, clearly very affectionate and important relationship. And then there are just parts of that relationship that, that remain a little hidden to us. On page 534, I can't even read it. It's such strong language. And it was it struck me as um, Bobby Kennedy is a liberal icon. And people that I observe who are liberals are very tolerant of supposedly of other people's lifestyle. But you have some quotes in on that page that Bobby Kennedy used to call J. Edgar Hoover, um, J. Edna and his friend Clyde, J. Edna and Clyde. According to AIDS, he liked to crack jokes about Hoover's masculinity uh, and I can't read it because it's just too strong a language. Um, and I, but when, when Tolson was admitted to a hospital, Bobby wanted to know why. Was it a hysterectomy? The gossip about this sort of comment sometimes made its way back to Hoover. In, six, in 62, a wiretap captured by a Philadelphia mobster guffawing to a friend that Bobby, quote, wants Edgar Hoover out of the FBI because he's a fairy. What is it about a, a liberal icon like Bobby Kennedy talking this way? And where did you find that? Well, I think a lot of that homophobia was just very widespread in all circles um, in this in this moment. And, you know, it's worth keeping in mind, it still was uh, even in the late 50s into the 60s, federal policy that you could not be gay and be employed by the federal government. Now, there were lots of gay people working for the federal government, nonetheless. Um, but so in that sense, it, it, it wasn't so unusual. And that kind of gossip uh, was all over Washington, although uh, particularly notable here. Hoover and the Kennedys also really didn't like each other. Um, you know, of course, one of the things that outraged Hoover about John Kennedy were uh, all of the uh, rumors and fact about his own extramarital sexual activity, right? Here is this good Catholic presenting himself as a uh, as a as a loyal husband, father of a couple of young kids, and Hoover has some sense of uh, uh, of what Kennedy is doing. So there's there's a very complicated. Uh, sexual politics in all of that. But in funny ways, I mean, there were moments where in that sort of epic war with uh, with the Kennedys, which was, you know, a fight over age and culture and politics and all sorts of things. There were a few moments where I I had some some sympathy for uh, for for Hoover um, and uh, he didn't like Bobby Kennedy going around with his you know, tie untied and his shirt sleeves rolled up. And, you know, Hoover was a very buttoned down guy and thought this was an outrage. We use also uh, say here, Bobby went beyond this idle chatter and briefly initiated an investigation into Hoover's private life, hoping to prove once and for all that the director preferred sex with men. Uh, when did when did the society change? And I guess, do we care anymore about homosexuality? Well, you know, I think a lot of those changes began to happen during precisely this period. Uh, so another episode that I recount in the book is of the Mattachine Society, which was one of the first 
uh, kind of gay rights homophile organizations to start up during this period. And that was in the Washington DC chapter explicitly about these, these civil service rules against the employment of gay people in, in the federal government. Um, but they are beginning to push back on that. They're ultimately successful, obviously, in that, but not uh, not for a little while. Um, but they have a little fun with J. Edgar Hoover along the way. They put him on their mailing list. Uh, Hoover does not like being on the mailing list and being invited to their local lectures and, and meetings. Um, and they do uh, finally sit down with some FBI officials and they say, OK, well, we'll take the director off of our mailing list if you'll take us off of your lists and, and stop conducting surveillance and doing all of that. So it's, you know, it's not an episode with a lot of, uh, I think, ultimately dramatic impact, but it's very telling about the changing politics of that moment. You say that uh, they rode to work together every day, but they did not live in the same house. And uh, they had lunch every day at Harvey's, which I think was in the Mayflower Hotel, that they went on all these vacations to Miami and to La Jolla and New York and all these places. Why would the director of the FBI, if he was in a position where he had to, I mean, presidents told him, go find the homosexuals in our government. Why would he take a chance like this? And, and, uh, and what evidence did you find that he knew through those years that people were saying the kind of things that they were saying about him? Well, there are files, FBI files, that show Hoover um, registering these rumors, uh, telling agents to go out and find the people and shut down the rumors and assure them that these things are not true. Um, I, it also wasn't an entirely static situation, which is to say that in the 30s and 40s, you had a much less virulent anti-gay politics in Washington than you get by the late 40s and, and into the 50s. And so, you know, in the 30s, Hoover and Tolson are uh, in New York moving in a kind of Broadway crowd, a nightclub crowd, uh, the Stork Club and other clubs where you wouldn't be openly gay, but there were a lot of a, a lot of gay people. Um, and so that was a much more fluid environment. And that changes over time. Um, I think in part, Hoover thought he was the exception to the rule. Um, and in part, I think that he believed that he was exercising a proper level of kind of decorum and self-control, right? Those are big parts of his psychology, his makeup, his self-presentation. Um, and when you look at his attitudes toward other people, uh, for instance, when Lyndon Johnson's aide, Walter Jenkins, is found in 1964 uh, engaged in a, in a homosexual uh, encounter in uh, in the YMCA in Washington, you know, Hoover's response to Jenkins is, oh, he lost control, right? You can't do that in public places, all of this sort of thing. He has a certain amount of sympathy. He thinks Jenkins is sort of mentally unstable, has lost control of himself. So I think there was a narrative for Hoover about his own ability you know, to control his behavior, his desires. Um, and uh, and we don't know how effectively he did that in private, but but I think it was important to how he understood himself. You say it was a sad story about his relationship with uh, uh, Mr. Purvis. What's that story? That is some really fascinating correspondence that is in the archives at Boston University. Uh, Melvin Purvis uh, ultimately became one of the most famous bureau agents of the mid-1930s. He became known as kind of the man who got John Dillinger. He was the head of the Chicago field office. Um, but that correspondence is mostly slightly earlier. And it's a very intimate correspondence between Hoover and one of his employees. And it's some of the best personal correspondence that we have, certainly from that period. Sometimes they're talking about bureau business, but often they're kind of engaged in an almost flirtatious banter. You know, Hoover is trying to get Melvin to call him by his first name and making jokes about how good looking Melvin is and how much the secretaries at the FBI like him. They're talking about their personal lives and their habits and their social lives. And so it's a fascinating correspondence. They're very close 
in the 30s, uh, but then partly because Purvis becomes famous, uh, partly because Purvis in becoming famous isn't abiding by Hoover's rules and regulations as Hoover wants, but they have a very dramatic and quite cruel break uh, in about 1936. Um, and Hoover really doesn't want to engage with Purvis uh, from that point on, does a lot of, uh, makes a lot of effort to kind of uh, contain and disparage Purvis. And then Purvis ultimately uh, kills himself. And Hoover doesn't publicly recognize that either. Why? Uh, what was this? What were the circumstances around Purvis's suicide? You know, they were, uh, there's, there's, some speculation about that. I mean, it seems clear that he was quite uh, uh, ill at that point. He had, he had a, I forget exactly what, uh, what was wrong, but he was in a lot of pain. Um, his son has actually written a, a very powerful and, and moving memoir about his father based in part on these letters. And it was his son who uh, put these letters at Boston University and sort of tells, you know, the family story from uh, from from the inside. But, you know, there's also a piece of it that I think his his career had been constrained. Uh, he had been frustrated for, for, for various reasons, though. You know, it's, of course, hard to say in the end why why anyone um, does that. But it was many years after after Hoover, I believe it was in the I might not get the year exactly correct, but it was in the early 60s. So it was quite a long time after his his FBI years. Right down the street from where our offices are located is the National Law Enforcement Museum. What can you see Hoover in that museum? So I haven't been there in a couple of years, but the last time that I was there, they had a reconstruction of Hoover's office, which was terrific. Um, I assume that it is still there. Uh, they have Hoover's desk, a lot of the materials from his office. Um, and they also have this incredibly valuable collection of Hoover's personal materials for research. So they are the ones that have his childhood diaries, his private photo albums, um, a lot of what we can get about um the, uh, the the early years in, in particular, um, those photos of Tolson that you mentioned, that's where you can go and see those. When you did your work, how much did you rely on other researchers at all to get uh, your material? Yeah, one of the great things about being a professor is that you have lots of smart students um, who you can get interested in things like J. Edgar Hoover. Um, so I did hire uh, research assistants, both undergraduate students and, and graduate students here, and then and then a few people who were, you know, in in, in locations um, that I needed that that were not uh, available, that were not students at Yale, um, and mostly uh, they took photographs of archives that weren't. Digitized um, and then uh, brought the photographs to me, and I, I I did all of the processing of of the information. But the sheer physical labor of of going to the archives, um, getting the materials, sitting there with the camera, I had lots of really really terrific and uh, and valuable researchers who helped me. I can't let you go without asking you about the course you were teaching at Yale, in which the donor got in the middle of it and you walked away from it. Can you explain that? And what's the status of that now? Is that it called the grand strategy course? That's right. So beginning in uh, 2017 here at Yale, I took over a course called Studies in Grand Strategy, which was uh, a class and really a program uh, that had its own endowment, um, had a series of summer fellowships, um, you know, guest lecturers, uh, uh, guest practitioners, had been founded by John Gaddis and Paul Kennedy um, and uh, a couple of other, uh, Charles Hill in particular, who were all professors here, specialists in foreign relations. Um, they had run it for a while, were getting near retirement and wanted a successor. So I took it over, um, made some changes to the program. But as you say, uh, I got in uh, a conflict with one of the donors who uh, wanted to exert a lot more control over the program than I thought was appropriate for a donor. And, you know, being a, a professor, I said, um, I want to run my own courses as I see fit and make those judgments myself. Um, unfortunately, the university uh, sort of uh, backed the donor rather than me. So I resigned from teaching that. And I'm now back just being a, a regular old history professor at Yale, which uh, is not such a bad gig and which I like quite a lot. 
What happened to the course then after you walked away? So the course is still running um, and it's being run by a sort of interim director. Um, I think its future is a little bit uncertain. They haven't brought in a new formal faculty director at this point, but uh, it is still running and it's actually still running with pretty much the syllabus that I had designed, uh, which was both about foreign policy and also about sort of strategies of social change and politics. Um, so in a practical sense, I think the experience of the course uh, is is a lot like what it was when I was there. I'm just not there. And someday someone else will probably come in and put their own stamp on it. What led to your appointment to the National Commission on the Humanities? And how involved are you? And what do you do as a, as a member of that commission? Yeah, I'm still in pretty early stages on that, and I actually don't know what led to my involvement uh, because one day the White House called and said, we'd like to nominate you to the National Council on the Humanities. And I said, well, that sounds interesting. Um, and so basically what we do is get together and uh, consult with the National Endowment for the Humanities. Um, we uh, are sort of the, the final review of grants. Uh, we make suggestions about speakers and programming. And so it's a, it's a sort of both formal and informal conversation. But we're sort of the board of advisors for uh, the National Endowment for the Humanities. And it's been really, really fascinating and fun thus far. How did you get interested in history? Well, I think I was always interested in history, even as uh, as as a child. Um, I read a lot of you know historical novels. Uh, I liked writing my my history papers. But uh, in college, I became an American studies major. Um, then I thought I was going to be a journalist coming out of college, and did that for a few years. But I found that being a journalist, I kept asking questions uh, both about you know, the deeper story that was there. And I thought I was writing on a surface level about a lot of different things. And I also realized that I uh, I kind of liked books and I liked big projects and I liked being able to sit with things for a while. And it seemed like uh, really universities are one of the only places where you can do that anymore, you know, and it's uh, it takes a lot of support and time um, and collaboration to do to do a project like this. And there aren't that many places that you can, you know, have someone who's who's willing to employ you over a long period of, well, 13 years in this case, while you're while you're producing a big book like this. I have a tricky question for you. Is there a favorite Yale professor that taught you years ago when you got your undergraduate degree? or for that matter, at Columbia, where you got your PhD. Yeah, I think I was influenced by uh, lots of folks. So I wasn't a history major at Yale, where I was an undergraduate. And so uh, now I'm in the history department, which is slightly different from from American studies. But I would say particularly in graduate school as a historian, I was very influenced by uh, Alan Brinkley, uh, who was my advisor, was one of the kind of great historians of the New Deal. But I think especially you know, at a certain moment in time was one of these figures who revived the study of political history of high political actors at a moment when that wasn't so fashionable in the history profession. Um, and then Eric Foner, who is a great uh, 19th century historian, uh, historian of the Civil War, Reconstruction, uh, was another one of my advisors. Um, also very influential in thinking about social movements, uh, in thinking about race, and thinking about interactions between high political actors uh, and people on the ground. And they were both great models of you know, both being serious scholars and being kind of publicly engaged writers. Um, they're great craftsmen, they're great stylists, um, and, and serious scholars. So they definitely put their, their stamp on me. Are you ready to do another book? And if so, do you have a subject that you've decided on? I am, I think, ready to do uh, a few more books. Um, I am not going to do a giant archive book <laughs> as my next project. I think I need to get away from the desk and get away from documents for a little while. Um, and so 
I am thinking about a book uh, that is going to explore some of the ways that uh, people on the ground in historic sites and that we as a nation at large are, you know, contesting and reinterpreting our history in this moment. So I'm thinking about it as a little bit of a history road trip. Um, so I think I'm going to do that for a while. Um, get me get me away from the computer screen and the desk now that we can, in fact, do that. And then I will get back into the archives for another project soon. You have one or two children. I have one child. You mentioned him in the book as basically growing up while you wrote this book. How old is he now? So he is now 19. Has he read your book? I do not think so. No. <laughs> <laughs> he read the dedication page. The name of the book is G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover, and the Making of the American Century. Our guest has been Professor Beverly Gage. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Brian. Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast. Please rate and review Book Notes Plus, and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments? We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.